Genesis chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 11, and Jude only has one chapter. So, <laughs> Genesis 5, Hebrews, and Jude. Jude is actually that little one chapter book right before the book of Revelation. So it's the next to the last book of the Bible. Genesis 5, our text will be found in verses 21 through 24. We're focusing our attention now as we're getting ready to move from chapter 5 into chapter 6. But we want to focus our attention upon the person of Enoch. Verse 21 says, And Enoch lived sixty and five years, and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah three hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, it says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him, or translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And in Jude, verses 14 through 16, it says of Enoch, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints, to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage." Shall we pray? Father, we ask that today you set our hearts firm in the knowledge of your word. We ask that you would anoint us with your Holy Spirit so that every word that we receive from you will be understood. And every thought and intent, Lord, of your heart, we will not only understand, but that we will also make it the thoughts and intents of our own hearts. We look to you, Lord God, for your wisdom and instruction. We look for your grace, Lord, to encourage and strengthen us and guide us as we seek to walk with you until the day of Jesus Christ. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Most people 
most people don't really consider their own epitaphs. What words will be written on their tombstones? There are some who do, but most don't. For the most part, that task is usually left to surviving family members. Now, I've found a few epitaphs, some humorous, others insightful, that you might appreciate. For example, in, uh, in a Georgia cemetery, there is this epitaph, I told you I was sick. I said, yeah, I noticed you started laughing before I said it. That's probably because it came up before I said it. That's called timing. That didn't work. There is in a cemetery in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, this epitaph. Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake stepped on the gas instead of the brake. Obviously, he didn't write it. And then there is a lawyer's tombstone in England. Sir John Strange. Here lies an honest man. And that is strange. Lawyer, honest man. Okay. Here's one in, you'll, you'll find in Riodoso. Here lies Johnny Yeast. Pardon me for not rising. You're waking up. In a Thurmont, Maryland cemetery, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. But then there are a couple that uh, are serious. John Quincy Adams, a believer in Jesus Christ, has on his tombstone, this is the last of earth, I am content. Only a believer in Jesus Christ can say that with confidence. This is the last of earth, and I am content in that. Because our home is not here. Our home is with the Lord. And then, of course, one of my favorites, because this was his, the life that he lived. Martin Luther King said, free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. And upon his tombstone are those words. But here in our text, in the Word of God, we find what can be considered the greatest testimony in any epitaph that could ever be placed on any person's tombstone. And it's concerning the man Enoch. He walked with God. He walked with God. I mean, the interesting thing is, he, he never had to use it as an epitaph on a tombstone because he never died. And after looking carefully at the genealogy of chapter 5, as we've been studying it over the past couple of weeks, we were struck with that truth that because of Adam's sin, man was now sub subject to death. And so we read the phrase more times than we probably wanted to. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Adam gave birth to sons and daughters and gave birth to Seth. Seth and he died, and Seth gave birth to sons and daughters, and he died. And Enosh, his son, gave birth to sons and daughters, but then he died, and so on and, and so forth. But Enoch's testimony was exceptionally different. Because after this, uh, this new birth of his son, Methuselah, after age 65, 
It says that Enoch walked with God. They have to understand that Enoch walked with God in those days which could have been considered the last days before the flood. Remember that he named his son Methuselah. Dying he shall send. In other words, when Methuselah dies, the flood was going to be sent. The flood was going to happen. So those were last days, as it were. And so he walked with God until he was taken bodily to heaven without ever dying. Now understand when I say bodily taken to heaven, he was taken by God. But something happened to Enoch so that he could be taken by God. Hebrews 11 verse 5 confirms this for us. In verse 5 of Hebrews 11 says, By faith Enoch was translated, that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. You know, when we look at the word translation or translated, we, we think in terms of words and languages. We think that, you know, we can take a phrase in one language and translate it to another. And that's true what you do. You have to change it. For example, just a very simple uh, a translation. In Spanish, we say Casablanca. We to change that to White House. They don't sound alike. They don't look alike. But they've been translated. They've been changed. And so the Greek, the Greek words for translated and translations here in verse 5 of Hebrews 11, they have a sense or they have the sense of removal. They have the sense of change and of being transferred. In this instance, being removed and changed and transferred from this earth into the very presence of God. To be with God. And that does, change, that does take a radical change to the body of Enoch. Enoch was born a sinner. Enoch was in flesh. But the Bible reminds us that when God comes to take us, what happens to us? We have to be changed too. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So going back to the Genesis passage, there is no mention of, of Enoch dying. It simply says, God took him. He was not, it says, for God took him. Now what has happened is that in, in, in our day and time, sometimes we use that particular phrase to mention that somebody has died. You might say, well, my, my grandfather you know, passed away and God took him, you know. But he was dead. He died. The fact of the matter is, that's not what it means here. It says he was not. All of a sudden he was here and then he was not. God took him. And he never mentions that he dies. So this then becomes the basis of understanding and the basis for understanding what is called the rapture of the church. I mean, you've heard the phrase, the rapture of the church. We, we talk about it a lot here. We, we believe in, in the rapture of the church, which is the catching up or the snatching away of the church by the Lord Jesus Christ to heaven before the period described in Scripture as the seven years of tribulation that also includes within the seven years what is called the great tribulation, the last three and a half years of the seven-year period called the tribulation. 
there, would, there will be a snatching away. There will be a taking away or a catching up. Now, we, we, we have to understand now that uh, the word for translation is a different word, but uh, it, it describes the transformation or the transference or the, uh, as I should say, the translation, because that's the word that's used, the removal and the change. The word rapture itself is not found in the Bible in that particular form. But in the Greek, the word is harpazo or harpazo, which means to catch away or to catch up or to snatch away. We'll see that in just a moment. The, the, the understanding is there. When the Bible was translated into Latin, the Latin word that was used there is the basis for the word, the English word, rapture. And that's why it is called the rapture of the church. But this particular teaching within the doctrine of eschatology, that's a fancy word to say it is the study of the last days or the study of last things, which there is a lot to say about in the scriptures. But this particular teaching within the the doctrine of last days or the eschatology has become a target of criticism not only by unbelievers. And there are a lot of people, you know, that know that the church believes in the rapture of the church and they just think it's a crazy thing, you know, that, that you know, God would just, you know, make people disappear. They, they can't rationalize that, they can't reason uh, that. But here again, what do, we have to, what do we have to secure our understanding of this? We have a God who created the earth in six 24-hour days. If God can create the earth in six 24-hour days, rest on the seventh, and in, in, in an instant create out of the dust of the ground man, as he did on the sixth day, and take a rib out of the side of man in a very instant and, and create a woman, and we believe this because we've been talking about this since January last year, If we have a God that can do that, we have a God that can take people away just in an instant. Because he's God. There is no other just like it. So there is that criticism by unbelievers who just consider it a very crazy thought. But then there are those New Agers, the people who believe in New Age kind of spirituality. Who consider that, uh, you know, at some point in time, they will all gather together because, you know, they're, they're... their goals are, are completely different, of course, from, uh, from the believer in Jesus Christ. But they, they believe that they can just gather themselves up together and have this, this mind-thought uh, convergence. A few years ago, they called it the harmonic convergence. Supposedly, they were going to all be you know, going to places like in, in Sedona and other, other places where there's some spiritualistic uh, things that they think happen, you know, in the, in the ground or in the mountains or whatever. And they had this thing called harmonic convergence that they were going to bring peace, you know, onto the earth and everything was just going to fall into harmony. But uh, it ended up being a moronic convergence more than anything else because, you know, nothing changed. But they're going to have that particular idea that when the church does go away, finally their harmonic convergence work because they don't like the church. And if the church disappears, they'll take credit for it. Something to think about. So, this particular teaching is a target of criticism, the rapture of the church, not only by unbelievers, but especially by those even in the church who consider those who believe in the rapture of the church before the great tribulation or the, before the tribulation period I should say as escapist 
as saying, well, you guys just want to escape, you know, trouble and trial and persecution and all kinds of other stuff. No, no. I'm going to try to explain that for you all today. Enoch serves, by the way, as, as a type of the church in this, in this particular instance. But those within the church who hold it to a, to a totally different kind of eschatology, they consider that those who believe in the rapture of the church before the tribulation period is escapist or even an excuse to deny that the church will go through any trial whatsoever, through any trouble or tri- tribulation before the Lord Jesus returns. Now that's just an absurd thing. It's absurd because since the, since the birth of the church, the church has been persecuted. We understand that Jesus said the church is going to be persecuted. And, and Jesus even says it, uh, you know, very clearly before he goes to the cross. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. You will have tribulation. I mentioned this on, on Thanksgiving Day. About the very fact that uh, people are going to hate us because they hated him first. They hate us because we love Jesus Christ. So we're not denying that there's persecution. There's persecution today. We have brothers and sisters today who are in prisons because they preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is never a matter of trying to escape the persecution that we know was going to come upon the church. But we have to make certain definitions here. There is something called tribulation that is connected to judgment, that is connected to the wrath of God, which God says I will never bring upon the church. So there are certain definitions of people who hold to certain views of the rapture of the church and and the timing of it, uh, even to this day. There are are those who, within the body of Christ, who believe that the church must endure some of the tribulation period, so uh, they feel that at the middle of the tribulation, before the great tribulation, that that's when the rapture will occur. These are called mid-tribulationists. There are others who say that the church will go through all of the tribulation period, that we need to go through it as some, some sort of cleansing, I suppose, or, or uh, I guess it becomes our purgatory, as it were. But uh, they are called post-tribulationists, and because of their view, I call them post-toasties. But anyway, that's just me. And still others who have a variation of either view. For example, there is a group that, that believe in a pre-wrath rapture. Right before the, the real bad wrath happens, then you know, the church is taken up. But there's a good number of others who believe the tribulation has already passed. It's already come and gone. And that's hard to believe <laughs> scripturally. We call them preterists. Uh, amillennialists and, and the like. So there, there's a lot of terminologies that we have. Uh, because we believe in the rapture of the church before the tribulation period, we call ourselves pre-tribulationists. If you need to have a label at all. But I think it, it clearly defines that we believe that Jesus is going to come to take his church before the great, uh, you know, before the tribulation itself, but uh, the seven years. But I want to concern ourselves with what God's word tells us. Let's concern ourselves with what God's word tells us. Because in the last days, these days in which you and I live, believers in Jesus Christ are to be caught up bodily to heaven prior to God's wrath being poured out in judgment. Now the Apostle Paul makes this clear in two passages of scripture. I want you to turn, to me, uh, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. 
Now, the key verses are verses 16, 17, and 18, but, but I want to begin in verse 13. The church uh, in Thessalonica was experiencing a tremendous amount of persecution at that time. There were even those in the church who had, had died, some just natural death, others probably because of some persecution. But the church was worried because somebody had been teaching that if they had died before Jesus came, that they wouldn't go with Jesus. They wouldn't be with the Lord. And so they were concerned about their loved ones. And this is what Paul says to them. He says, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Don't sorrow like those who have no hope whatsoever. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, which means they're dead, but they're in Christ. Them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord. So he takes us to scripture in essence. And he says by the word of the Lord that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. We won't go before them. In fact, he says in verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and with a trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So now he's giving us, uh, you know, the, an order. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. It was to be a comfort to know that those who have died before the coming of the Lord were actually going to be the first to rise from the dead. But if you look carefully at verse 17, it says, Then we which are alive and remain. Paul is speaking, you know, Paul was even waiting for the rapture of the church to happen. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. With them in the clouds. Caught up. There's that phrase. Harpazo in the, in the Greek. Caught up. Snatched away. Just like Enoch. Together with them. The dead in Christ have risen first. Caught up together with them in the clouds. To meet the Lord in the air. If you've been afraid of flying, you don't have to worry because you'll have a different body because that's what God's going to do. Why? Because you'll be translated. I'll explain that in just a moment. But we will be meeting the Lord in the air with them and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, come for one another with these words. Fantasy? Some people in Hollywood would think it is. No, reality. This is God's reality. Remember that the scripture says nothing is impossible with God. This is not just some sort of vain promise that, that, uh, that Paul make, make, makes mention of to, to let people realize, well, you know, just comfort yourself. I mean, oh, we'll be caught up together with him. No, no, no. He wasn't trying to make something up. I'm sure he was looking back at the very person of Enoch to say, this is what's going to happen. Enoch is a type of what's going to happen when Jesus comes. Now, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now we, 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 we come more to a specific understanding of the translation part. 
the translation of Enoch. Because in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 57, Paul writes, Behold, I show you a mystery, something that has been hidden until now, now being revealed. I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. What is that reference to? Death. We shall not all sleep. What was he saying to the people in Thessalonica? You're, you're worried that those of your loved ones who have died, who are asleep in Christ or sleeping in Christ, are not going to be raised up? So here he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now we're dealing with the issue of translation. We shall all be changed in a moment. Notice, in the twinkling of an eye. I don't, I don't have the figure, but boy, they, you know, scientists today have, have come to, to uh, actually measure to the, to, to the decimal point the twinkling of an eye. It's, it's fast. In that moment, we will be changed. Because he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Wasn't a trumpet mentioned in 1 Thessalonians? It says, for the, trump, the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. The dead first, remember. Now, there's order here, again. The dead shall be raised incorruptible and we, who are alive and remain, shall be changed. For this corruptible, what we're in right now is these corrupt bodies are still in flesh and they're still subject to, to you know, to the... Uh, uh, the curse on this on this world for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so when this corruption shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory o death where is thy sting o grave where is thy victory the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the change comes. And we're translated into the very body that can actually enter into heaven, that can actually be in the presence of God, that can actually be in His love and grace and in His very heart. In an instant, we shall be changed. That's exciting. And we're told that this is something of a comfort to us. You know that the older we get. Now I started hearing about the rapture of the church 30, almost 40 years ago. Which means I'm 40 years older. And I've come to realize corruption. <laughs> I'm getting old. Nothing works like it used to work. You know, But it's a comfort to know, I'm not taking this body into heaven. There's one reserved for me and one reserved for you. Because the corruptible must put on incorruption. And the, and the mortal must put on immortality. Well, that only comes by the work of God and by the work of Christ. So it brings us back to Enoch then. And why we need to focus on his walk with God. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 5 now. Verses 21 through 24. 
And Enoch lived 60 and 5 years and begat Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God. Twice it says that he walked with God. And he was not. In other words, he was for a moment. Then he was not. For God took him. Twice we're told that Enoch walked with God. This means that this experience is significant for us today. God has mentioned it twice so that we can have our attention fully focused on what's happening here with Enoch. Enoch walked with God. And he not only walked with God, but he walked with God always. And to walk with God is to walk by faith. To walk with God is to walk by faith. Now Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7, For we walk by faith, not by sight. And when we go back to what we read in, in Hebrews eleven five, it says, By faith Enoch was translated by faith. Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Now remember that last time I said that you know Enoch obviously was not the only one who walked with God. Adam had walked with God. All those in the line from Adam to through Seth and Enosh and all the way through Noah, from Noah and Shem and his son, all the way down to David and from David. You know, all those who, who stayed faithful in the line, they walked with God. There were many who were walking with God. But, but the Lord took Enoch, who was at the very, that moment of time, that things were needing to happen and things were going to happen, to the extent that he even names his own son, Dying, he shall send, which means when he dies, the flood comes. And we'll talk about that, of course, when we get to chapter 6 and 7. We are seeing here, then, one person that God has, has set apart for us to see and to look at as a type of the church. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him, removed him, changed him, transferred him. For before his translation, he had this testimony. Before he was caught away, before he was taken out of the earth, he had a testimony, and it says that he pleased God. And again, Enoch wasn't the only one that, that had faith and that pleased God, but God is singling him out for a reason. Enoch trusted in a God he couldn't see. Enoch trusted in a God he couldn't see. That says a lot about faith, doesn't it? We trust God today. We don't see him. We've never seen him with our physical eyes. One day we'll have eyes to be able to see him. But we've never seen him with these eyes, these physical eyes of ours. But we have certainly seen his effects upon our lives and the lives of others. We have seen what he's doing uh, in fulfilling all of his prophecies uh, that, that brought about Jesus Christ into this earth. The, the prophecies that brought Jesus to this earth, as, as we'll be studying the next few weeks, and, and the birth of Christ and all. 
the things that he's done in affecting the lives of, 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 of many in this whole world. We've seen what God has done. And so he serves as one who trusted in God, in a God he can't see. Adam may have walked with God in a, in a way that he had seen some of the glory of God because Adam was created perfect and there was a glory about him. But after the fall and after being escorted out away from the tree of life, protected by the angels and all, and uh, Adam had to begin to sweat and work uh, as, as he did. And even when God forgave him, clothed him, uh, with, the, with the skins of the animals, the blood had been shed to be offered for their sins. He had to trust in a God he couldn't see, but he had had a, an experience with. But Enoch, he always trusted in a God he couldn't see. He serves as a type of the church. And if his life is a foreshadowing of the church, of believers, how should we then be walking? Because it says, Enoch walked with God. How should we then be walking if Enoch is a type of the church? To be taken out of this world at a specific time. We're sometimes so anxious and we see this a lot in church. You know, there, there's, a, there's a legalistic bent in, in many churches today. But we're sometimes so anxious to put do's and don'ts out there on a list and, and admonish folks to follow that list. You know, we say, listen, a Christian acts like this and he doesn't act like that. A Christian dresses like this, he never dresses like that. A Christian do, does these things, or, or, but, but he never does anything like that. You know, and so there's, there's do this, don't do that kind of issue. But, but, but we know as Christians that we're to be good witnesses. We know that. We're, we're to be good witnesses with our lives and we're to set a good example for others to follow. But how much simpler could we make the whole testimony if we could just say, we walk with God because we trust Him? I mean, that's simple. We walk with God because we trust Him. That's our testimony. That should be our testimony. And because we walk with God, we're not going to do all the things that are going to, uh, you know, displease God. As a matter of fact, I will go a little bit ahead of myself right now and say, when we draw near to God, He draws near to us. When we draw near to God, all we want to do is what God wants us to do. We just want to bask in His glory. We're not going to be thinking about all these other things. We're going to be enjoying his presence. We're called to walk with God. In Galatians chapter 5 verse 16, Paul says this, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Here's a very prime example, you see. Walk in the spirit of God. Walk knowing that God is with you. God said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Walk in the spirit. Walk dwelling in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There are time and again, people are always saying, oh man, I struggle with this lust, I struggle with that lust, I struggle with the flesh, I struggle with this. Well, walk with the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. 
You've got to trust that God is with you. You've got to trust the fact that if you are dwelling with him and loving him and serving him and, 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 and just basking in his, in his glory and in the light of his presence, you're not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh. You've got to dwell in him and abide in him, live in him. When we die to ourselves and live in Christ, guess what? The flesh does not control. Later on in the same chapter, Galatians 5 verse 25, Paul says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. If we dwell or live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. The walk, this is our daily life. You know, we get up, we move, we breathe, we go out. We, you know, we are a testimony for Jesus Christ. Walking is living. Here in this case, living is dwelling in Christ. But if we dwell in Christ, then we are to walk in Christ. Knowing that he never leaves us. He's always with us. We're walking with God. In Ephesians 5 verse 2, Paul says, And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. Walk in love. We have, we have to realize that we, we live in a, in a tremendously opinionated society. And sometimes Christians get caught up in this thing about, about uh, you know, criticizing others because of the way they look or the way they smell or the way they eat or the way they do anything. Listen, walk in love. As Christ also has loved us. As Christ has loved us, we are to love one another. And we have to even go beyond that because when Christ saved us and changed us, renewed our minds and renewed our hearts, we not only love each other in the church, we are called to love the unloved. We are called to love the unlovely. We are called to love those who hate God, but love them to bring them into the kingdom of God. We cannot do that without the Spirit of God, therefore we must walk in the Spirit and then walk in the love of Christ. In Ephesians 5 verse 8 it says, For you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. How distinctly clear Paul is being when he says, Listen, you once lived in darkness. Now you're in, now you're in the light of Christ. Walk in that light as children of the light. You're no longer children of darkness. In verse 15 of the same chapter, Paul says, See then that you walk circumspectly. In other words, walk carefully. Circumspectly is to know what's all around you. Walk circumspectly. Walk carefully, not as fools, but as wise. We need to walk in the wisdom of God. Well, how much better is it for us to walk with God? Because when we walk with God, He imparts His wisdom to us. And then there's Colossians chapter 1 verse 10. That you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I mean that's every pastor's desire. That you leave here with God's word that you know that you are to walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, pleasing Him. And being fruitful in every good work. And increasing in the knowledge of God. I want you to know God more today than you knew him last week. I want you to know God more next Sunday than you knew him today. To know him more. 
To increase in that knowledge. To increase in your love for Him. To increase in your service for Him. To increase in your fruit for Him. And this brings us back to Hebrews. Because in Hebrews 11 verse 6 it says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. Remember it says that his testimony, Enoch's testimony was that he pleased God. So now Paul says, but without faith it is impossible to please him. You must walk by faith. Walking with God is walking by faith. But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Unfortunately, too many people today say, you know, I believe in God, but they don't live as they do. They don't live as if they believe in God. I call that practical atheism in the church. We go to church, we go through the motions, but do we truly trust in God? Are we truly walking with Him? Because if not, then we're saying we believe, but we don't believe because we don't walk in Him. Listen, that's practical atheism. We must believe that he is. And that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So to walk with God is to walk by faith. Secondly, to walk with God is to walk in the light. To walk in the light. Now we made reference to being children of light in Ephesians 5. But in 1 John chapter 1, and I want you to turn here to 1 John chapter 1. While you're turning there. I'm going to wet my whistle. 1 John 1 verses 5 through 7. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you. Notice that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him. The point I was just making a little earlier. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. Listen, there's a benefit in walking with God and walking in the light. That the more that we find ourselves in fellowship with God, we we realize without any doubt whatsoever that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sin. So you need to understand, you can't walk in darkness and walk in God, for God is light and there's no darkness at all in Him. You can turn from the darkness and walk in His light and have fellowship with Him, but you can't live a life in rebellion against God and say that you're walking with Him. Let's add one more point to this. To walk with God is to walk in agreement with God. To walk with God is to walk in agreement with God. Take the verse, Amos 3, verse 3. Can two walk together, except they be agreed? Can two walk together, except they be agreed? You see, if you don't agree with God in regards to sin, if you don't hate sin as he does, how can you walk together? There there are a lot of people today who have been deceived into thinking, listen, God loves you just exactly the way you are and and he really doesn't want you he doesn't need you to change I mean he just loves you the way you are is that true is that what the Bible teaches you no we were sinners and God sent his only begotten son Jesus Christ to die on a cross for our sins you think we need to stay the same 
And it's going to benefit us if we do. People today walking around saying, yeah, I, I love God, I believe in God, but you know what, he loves me too, and he believes in me, and no matter what I do, no matter what things that you might call sin, and if I'm doing them, whatever alternative lifestyle I may be uh, a part of, can two walk together, except they be agreed? God still hates sin. God hasn't changed. God didn't say, well, you know what, we're, we're living in a new society now, and, and you know all the people that I created, I'm going to change my word now. Well, I'll tell you what, some people who are doing modern translations are trying to change God's word, but God's word hasn't changed. God's word has not changed. He still hates sin. Two people do not walk together along the road unless they have first met and then have had a time to chat a little bit and then they agree to continue on together. I may get, I'm going to give you a little bit of an absurd uh, example. Two people just don't get together and say, well, you know, hey, listen, I don't know you, you don't know me, but let's walk together down this road. And I know it's getting dark, but it's okay. Well, okay, I'll go with you. What's your name? Jack the Ripper. Anybody remember Jack the Ripper? You all know who that is, right? He was a serial killer. Yeah, my name's Jack the Ripper. You, you're, you're gonna wanna walk with him down the road? You don't, you don't have anything to be agreed with him unless you're a serial killer too. You understand? I know it's an absurd example, but, but folks, that's the thing. Two people do not walk along the road unless they first meet, unless they first talk, unless they agree to continue on together. They have something that, that they can trust in the other and they can walk together. And you know what? They, they're not going to hurt each other. Now, here's the thing with God. This doesn't mean that God will come over and agree with you. He's not going to come over and agree with you. You and I will have to go over to his side and agree with him. Y'all agree with me on that? It isn't God coming to our side and agreeing with us. It's us going to his side and agreeing with him about everything that we have in his word. We have to remember that the Lord is running the universe his way and he's not really going to ask advice from us. We will need to go his way. He's Lord. He's God. He's master. He's king. We're not. I haven't gotten a call this week from the Lord. Saying, hey, listen, Charlie, I, I, could you help me out with something? Sure, Lord. And he doesn't do that. You know what I do? I call him all the time. Almost every day. Lord, God, help me. It's these people of yours. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. God, help me. But you know what? I need his help. I want to be agreed with him. That I might walk together with him. You see, it doesn't work the other way. We have to agree with him. To walk with God is to walk in agreement with God. What he hates, I must hate. What he loves, I must love. Is it any wonder that Jesus said, I am the way? the truth, and the life. 
No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There's no other way. We have to agree with that. Or else we go the other way. God will not agree with us. We must agree with him. Enoch is our type. Enoch is the type of the church. And Enoch walked with God. And God took him. You see, for Enoch, there was only one world for him. And he walked in it with God. There was only one world for Enoch, and he lived in it, and he walked with God. You know, I sometimes think that we try so hard to enjoy the passing things of this world so that we don't miss out. Oh, we, look at, you know, we might look at our friends today. Oh, you know, I have so many friends today. You know, they got up... You know, a lot later than us, and they turn on their TVs, and they're sitting down reading their Sunday paper with a coffee next to them, and they're getting ready to watch NFL today, and they're going to, you know, do all of this kind of stuff. Oh, I'm just at church. I don't know of any other place I'd rather be, but with God's people worshiping the Lord who created us, made us in His image, and gave us His only begotten Son, that He would come and take care of our sin issue for us. This is where I want to be. You understand? But there are those who just, they don't want to miss out. So, they, they, so, so, that, so you know, they don't want to feel left out. And when we think this way, we don't even realize how much of our behavior and our thinking are shaped by the world, conformed to the world, like the world. But I want you to consider three things today. I want you to consider that Enoch, first of all, was not conformed to this world. Enoch was not conformed to this world. Secondly, Enoch was not controlled by this world. Enoch was not controlled by this world. And thirdly, Enoch was not condemned with this world. Consider those three things. Enoch was not conformed to this world, he was not controlled by this world, and he was not condemned with this world. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. By the way, the word beseech there is a powerful word. He says, I beseech you, I beg you with all of my heart. I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. I mean, he is begging us even today. That we present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy, which means set apart, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable service. Are we we having a reasonable service today? I hope that it's a reasonable service of worship in God's eyes rather than in ours. What is reasonable for us? Many, many years ago, I read a, a, a little book by a man named Watchman Nee. The name of the book was The Normal Christian Life. And when you read the book, you, you come to the conclusion, this is normal. The normal Christian life is anything but normal to this world. The normal Christian life is to live far above the way we lived as, as unbelievers. Because we walk with God. 
because we're filled with the Spirit of God, because we have the Word of God, and because we have the presence of God through His Spirit. It's anything but normal. Our service is anything but reasonable in the sense that we have come with great expectation that God is going to speak to our hearts, that God is going to do a work in us that we cannot do of ourselves, in and of ourselves. So he says, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable, reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. This was exactly what went into the very life of Enoch. For 300 years, he walked with God. For 300 years, he walked in in the light of God. For 300 years, he walked by faith in God. For 300 years, he walked in agreement with God. Because his mind was renewed. He was transformed from from being just a, a person who was born in sin to one who believed and trusted with all of his heart in the God who created him. And it says that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How do we know that Enoch was not conformed to this world? Because he had a testimony that he pleased God. That's what it says in Hebrews 11. We know that Enoch was not conformed to this world because he had a testimony that he pleased God. Enoch had been transformed by the renewing of his mind and of his heart. And for over those 300 years, Enoch set himself apart to walk with God each and every day of his earthly life. To the point that one day God said, okay, you're with me now. And he took him. How do we know that Enoch was not controlled by the world? Because he was separated to the task of preaching and prophesying God's message to a lost and dying world. Go, now go to uh, Jude chapter, uh, well Jude uh, verses 11, I'm sorry, Jude verses 14 through 16. In Jude verse 14 it says, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam. I mentioned last week that this is to distinguish him from the other Enoch who was was actually the son of Cain. It says, Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. I mentioned last week also that, that Enoch, being as far removed from us as far as distance and time is concerned, still in his time saw the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince or convict all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurs, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. In other words, having, you know, putting people up in the pedestal rather than rather than exalting God. He was a preacher and he was a prophet. That's what we're being told here in Jude. He was a preacher and he was a prophet. Remember that Enoch had named his son Methuselah, dying he shall send, knowing that a great judgment was coming at the, de- at the very death of Methuselah. Why was Methuselah the oldest living person? Because of God's mercy, giving everybody an opportunity to repent. But knowing this, knowing this brought Enoch nearer to the very heart of God. And the nearer we are to the Lord, the less the world can radiate its influence on us. 
This is why it says in the book of James, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. God loves us so much, he'll protect us, he'll keep us, he'll watch over us. But we need to draw near to him. It has to be our choice, it has to be our desire to draw near to the heart of God. And I just love that thought that when we draw near to the heart of God, the less the world will radiate its influence on us. How do we know that Enoch was not condemned with this world? Once again, he simply pleased God with his faith. His name, Enoch, comes from that Hebrew word, chanok, meaning dedicated. And it speaks of his life as totally dedicated to God. He, he apparently did three significant things. Enoch, first of all, totally dedicated and committed his life to God. Again, totally. Not half-heartedly, totally. Secondly, Enoch initiated or began a deeper kind of walk in life with God, a deeper kind of communion, a deeper uh, fellowship with God. He initiated. He walked with God, it says. He walked with God. Thirdly, he taught men the life and walk of total commitment to God, of unbroken communion and fellowship with God, both in his prophesying and in his preaching, but most importantly, by his life. Turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Colossians 2, verses 6 through 10. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. Listen, I want to speak to you as the church. And you listen. Paul is writing to the church. He says, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. The question is, have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you received him? Remember this, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Have you received Christ? Or are you still walking in death? You have to, you have to know what that answer is. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Are you rooted in Christ? Are you being built up in Christ? Are you established in the faith as you've been taught? Are you abounding with thanksgiving? Notice what he says in verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. For in him, Jesus Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All that is telling us is that Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. And it says, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You see, you have to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have, then you know what? Walk in him. If you have received the Lord, walk in him. You see, in a sense, Enoch was a most unusual person. He wasn't perfect. We know that because he was born in sin. He was in the line of Adam, and Adam had already fallen. 
So he wasn't perfect. He was a mere man. He was, as all other men, sinful and mortal. Nevertheless, at some point in his life, Enoch gave his life so completely to God, so totally to God, that he had a very special relationship with God. And so it says Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. I want to leave you one more question. What did God take Enoch from? What did God take Enoch from? It's going to bring us back to the eschatological questions. To the doctrine of last things. What did God take Enoch from? Genesis 6 verse 5 says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Doing a bit of calculating, it can be figured out that Enoch was taken up approximately 680 years before the flood came. Now, that might sound like a lot of years. But in those days, it was only a couple of guys long. Right? 680 years was just a couple of guys. Because, I mean, they lived 700, 800, 900 years. So, if Enoch was taken up about 680 years, about one generation really before. But the point is this. It was well before the destruction and it was long enough before that no one can possibly argue that Enoch was taken up from the midst of the destruction, from the middle of the destruction, if we're looking at things in type. Is it merely thoughts of escapism for people to believe that Christ will come before the tribulation for his church? I want to leave you with these verses here as we close today. Because I want to make sure very quickly, I know because of time I can't you know, go in more detail, but just make it very quickly that there's a tremendous distinction between uh, tribulation, wrath, the wrath of God, and uh, judgment, the judgment of God on one side, and the persecution of the church, the things that the church have gone through from the very beginning of the church on the other. So you'll understand when we read in Luke 21 verse 36 what Jesus says, and by the way these are the words of Jesus himself. He says, watch ye therefore, uh, Luke 21 verse 36, watch ye therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to what? Escape. Is an escapist theology man-made? Or is Jesus saying, pray that you might be count worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man? Those are Jesus' words, not mine. Going back to what the Apostle Paul has taught in 1 Thessalonians, well, we're going to go to the first chapter, uh, verses 9 and 10. Paul says, For they themselves show us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, notice, which delivered us from the wrath to come. He delivered us from the wrath to come. We come to Christ 
we become the antitype of Enoch, who would not himself see the destruction that was to come. He has saved us from and delivered us from the wrath to come by coming to Jesus Christ. And then lastly, in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians, verses 6 through 10, it says, therefore, let us not sleep as do others. Now, he's really talking about sleeping in, a spiritual, in the spiritual sense of saying, you know, we need to be awake and uh, vigilant. But too many people, even in the church, are falling asleep. So, anybody here? Don't fall asleep. Okay, therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that dr- uh, are drunken or be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober. No, sober. Notice, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. And notice verse 9, for God has not appointed us to wrath, judgment, tribulation, but to obtain salvation. By our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. I think it's pretty clear. And these aren't all the verses. This is all I can give you because it's time. The point is, Enoch serves as a type of the church to be caught up before the tribulation takes place, which is yet to come, but it's not too far away. The whole teaching for today says, walk with God by faith in the light of God, in agreement with God. Because he's coming and he's coming soon. And we're told to look up because our redemption draws near. We need to be ready. For the coming of Jesus Christ. I want us all to be walking with God when Jesus comes. Let's pray.